Sunday, May 29th, 1994. This is the day of the year when race fans everywhere feel their pulses rev faster. The day when 33 skilled drivers who have worked all of their lives to get here will begin the search for a prize that means more than just a trophy. More than just a million dollars. It means being named winner of the 500. It's race day in Indianapolis. The 500, the 500, the biggest and best of them all. It's the greatest, greatest, greatest race in the world. Hello and welcome to a special retro episode of the Race IndyCar podcast. Throughout the season, we'll be looking back at one of the golden eras of American open wheel racing, specifically from 1993 to the early 2000s, with the drivers, teams and personalities that made this period great. My name is Jack Benyon, American editor at The Race, and today we'll be looking at the sensational story of an engine developed in less than eight months and has eventually become known as Beast, built by Ilmore. So later on, we'll be talking to Alonso Jr., as the person who gave that beast engine, the Mercedes 500i, a spoiler alert, made an Indy 500 win for Team Penske. First to set the scene, we have Jade Gers, author of the book Beast, which is the Bible on the engine of the same name, and Kevin Walter, the engineer who managed Penske's engine program, including the Beasts once they'd arrived from Ilmore. So before we dig into this epic story with Jade and Kevin, let's just briefly set the scene for the people who are not aware of what was going on in the lead up to this point. So IndyCar was already globally popular, but in 1993, Nigel Mansell's rival spawned Mansell Mania with a series of, you know, enjoying stratospheric interest and attracting TV ratings as high or bigger than Formula One in some countries. So a crop of veteran drivers and some up-and-coming entertainers ready to challenge the establishment, plus a host of engine manufacturers and competitive racing married all these ingredients for a hit racing series. Indeed, Penske had just signed 1990 IndyCar champion and 1992 Indy 500 winner Al Jr., who we'll speak to later, and a young Paul Tracy to join the big name Emerson Fittipaldi at Penske for that year. So as well as that, you've got engines from Ilmore, Honda for the first time in 94, and Cosworth all gunning to win the Indy 500. And at this point, they were all turbocharged V8 engines with overhead cams. And I say at this point because things are about to change. At the Indy 500 specifically, still the event everyone wanted to win over any championship, despite the popular emergence of the car IndyCar World Series. A small company from Brixworth in the UK, Ilmore, had won the last six Indy 500s. For 1994, a rule change meant that much bigger 3.4-litre pushrod engines previously required to use stock block could be custom-built and allowed 1.863 bar of boost specifically instead of 1.5 like the regular engines. So in 1993, at the Wigwam Resort in Phoenix, Roger Penske and Mario Lillian met and agreed to try the impossible to build the pushrod engine in less than eight months, totally in secret for fear of the governing body lowering the boost pressure on the car before the race. So Mercedes will come on board and the car was on track by February, didn't complete 500 miles until the start of the Indy 500 month of May. And Paul Tracy crashed on Fast, fast Friday with a concussion and during the race, only one car finished. Alonso Jr. stalled in the pits, Tracy's car gave way, and Fittipaldi crashed after a titanic battle of the ages while trying to lap Alonso Jr. It was good to make the end of the race on fuel. So now Beast was so powerful that the drivers had to back off in practice to hide its pace for fear of the organisers pegging it back. And when it finally got going at Indianapolis, it was so strong, it was literally turning the wheels inside the tyres, and it managed 256 miles an hour. 
So that's the scene set and the boring part done for Kevin and Jade, who are waiting in the background here. Jade, let's come to you first and talk about Ilmore. It's too easily forgotten in this story, I think, by people who just see the Mercedes badge and, you know, that's all it was at that point, a badge or, you know, a technical sponsorship, you know, when Ilmore developed this engine. So what was Ilmore like to work at this point from the research you've done? You know, you've spoken to employees top to bottom now. Um, and what were Mario Ilian and the late Paul Morgan like to work for? Well, <clears throat> in that era, the the people who worked on the engine still had their reg quote regular duties during the day. So you had people that were working on uh, existing engines and the Formula One engine, and uh, then at night they would come back and work through the night to develop and de- and design um, this new engine, secret engine for Indianapolis. So people who were very clearly working exhausting hours for weeks at a time, yet because of Mario and uh, Paul Morgan's leadership, it was all for a very specific purpose. They were all very motivated to get this done and get it uh, up and ready with the singular goal of winning the Indy, Indy 500, as you mentioned Indy 500 in in particularly here in the states is sort of the crowning glory of any racers or race team's career and that became the overriding goal or the overriding um, motivation for all of them the others that were not involved in this project had no idea it was going on uh, both at Ilmore and at at Penske um, one of the great reactions that I've had from people who uh, were around at the time or were involved would tell me, I had no idea that this other guy or this other part of the project was going on. <laughs> they were all very siloed and very um, focused upon their own role, their own duty, and had no idea how massive or how big the project was overall. And, and for me, that's been fascinating to hear from multiple people um, who participated in creating Beast, the Beast. I guess um, I think my favorite uh, quote from, from your book is uh, Paul Morgan when he says, um, you can have a week to do a job. And then that person complains and then uh, Paul says, okay, you can have seven days. That kind of sums up the whole, <laughs> I think that, that sums up Paul Morgan quite well, I think, from people who, uh, you know, remember working with him, but also, you know, kind of sums up the, uh, you know, the operation, I guess. Yeah. Paul, Paul was a, a wonderful guy. Um, and honestly, I had thought about doing this project for years and Paul passed away uh, in a, a crash he collected or he flew vintage World War II planes and had a, uh, a tragic accident and, and we lost Paul in 2001. I really thought the project was dead, uh, but then I became friends with his son Patrick and Patrick made a comment one day about, oh, how great would it be to learn more about what my dad was doing during that project? And it was almost like pushing me over the crest of a roller coaster. It was almost enough just to push me over that uh, that edge, and uh, we were off and running. So uh, it was great to to really put a spotlight on Paul, and certainly Mario, his brilliance as a designer. Um, I, I think Mario is 
very proud of this project. And, you know, it certainly is a huge part of his, his legacy. Kevin, let's get your take on that quickly as well, because in this story, I guess you're kind of thought of as the man who kind of looked after the engines once they'd got to Penske, but you were kind of there at Ilmore at the start as well, weren't you? So you've, you've got a great kind of insight into not only, you know, what happened with Beast and the Penske program, but also the kind of history of Ilmore and, and how that kind of came about as well. Yeah, well, the engine itself, you know, despite the secrecy, uh, for the people involved, uh, knew what an advantage it was potentially. And, and that was really a huge motivating factor. You know, uh, we had the confidence in Ilmore to deliver uh, the design for sure, because these guys were at the top of their game. And the fact that you could go in there with uh, 10 inches of mercury boost advantage and a significant displacement advantage Yes, it was a new architecture, a new old architecture engine with push rods and the like. But uh, we'd seen previous years, uh, uh, by evidence of the Buick program, how potent those engines could be. And it was, uh, for the Buicks, it was always just about getting the longevity required to go 500 miles. But clearly, everybody involved in the program knew if we could get it to work, it would be nearly unstoppable. And, uh, you know, that, that was a huge motivation uh, to push it through. Again, as Jade mentioned, uh, and yourself, you know, the worry about the rules makers coming in and taking away your advantage once this performance became public and known was always a threat. And so that helped us drive the secrecy. Uh, even in the uh, early days, uh, I say early, this is into uh, now jumping ahead to late April, even bringing in the USAC guys to do the engine inspection and, you know, get come to grips for how they were going to, uh, you know, verify the engine at the racetrack, uh, you know, determine its legality and everything. We had them at the shop, uh, you know, it'll kind of walk them through that, but everything was really, really hush hush. And, uh, you know, it, it, Truly, one of the best kept secrets in the motorsport, uh, certainly of that era. It's still, um, you know, I guess uh, it still must be the the best Pontiac engine, the best Pontiac NASCAR engine ever made. Because <laughs> all the paperwork that was sent out, yeah, all the paperwork that was sent out was, yeah, fantastic. I guess um, the drawings that went out, yeah, you know, I mean, because you're still forced to work within your supplier network. You know, no matter what capabilities Ilmore had for manufacturing parts in-house and certainly they controlled a lot of the key components blocks and heads uh, they're still forced to go out into the world to get parts from their their vendors and yeah the, the Pontiac uh, NASCAR engine served as a suitable disguise <laughs> Jade I guess um, I probably shouldn't tell you this but probably um, I'll probably say this four or five times in the podcast as well my favorite part of your book is and it'll be five different things uh, but yeah just I, I love the fact that Beast was bit by bit transported from the UK uh, via P51 Mustangs and the Concorde. It's just that, that is just, if you needed something so fitting to, to, to kind of sum up Beast, then that has got to be it, right? <laughs> Absolutely. That is one of my favorites as well. The thought of Paul Morgan filling the ammunition bays of his <laughs> World War II Mustang uh, fighter plane uh, to, to, take parts to Heathrow, which were then loaded upon the Concorde, which then flew um, at very rapid pace to, to New York, where it was picked up by the Penske people. 
um, it, it, it's mind blowing the efforts they went to 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 keep the process going. I'm sure on Kevin's end, uh, it must have been exciting each morning to find out what the folks <laughs> in England had done overnight there uh, and sent via the Concord. Yeah, well, that, that's a that's a good point, Jade, because I would contend the the whole success of the program really sprung out of the fact that what was originally viewed of being a disadvantage. And that was the fact that, you know, your design and manufacturing team was uh, across the Atlantic in the UK doing their good work and where the build, test and evaluation was happening in the USA. And now remember, this is, uh, this is before email. Uh, this is before video conference. And our primary mode of communication was either phone and uh, I could dial the direct number at the Elmore factory uh, quicker than anybody uh, <laughs> or directly to, uh, you know, to Paul Morgan uh, calling up the Brown House, which is his, uh, his home in Bricksworth, uh, because it was just all hours uh, the available. The information was becoming available. But back to that point about UK versus the USA and, and turning that into something that worked. You know, when you're track testing, you are typically track testing during the day. And so naturally. Uh, and so then at the end of the test, you know, it was a second race to get the engine out of the car and disassembled because our, our primary focus during that period from February to May was to run the engine as hard as possible, run it to failure, in fact, take it apart and then clearly document what the failure, the root causes of failure, as, as best as we could tell, to get that information back to the Elmore engineers who could then react to that and come up with the next design iteration. So we changed this deal about working on two separate con continents of a liability into an advantage because we'd test during the day, we'd tear down in the late afternoon, early evening, whatever, we would get this, what we call the strip report, you know, disassembly observations. That would go by fax before going home that night. And most of the time it was 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night. And it went to two locations. It went to the Elmore factory where it would, you know, Paul and Mario would grab it, you know, literally a few hours later while we were sleeping. And uh, it went to Roger Penske in Detroit. And so that we had this sort of triangle set up between all of us. It was a very flat communication structure. And it was just about, okay, what happened and what do we do next? But really, we, we almost doubled the amount of days between February and May because effectively those guys were working all night in their, which was the day in their time zone. And we were, and we were, you know, working during the day. So it really turned out to be, an advantage to be to be frank awesome i just want to kind of go back to to the beginning a little bit because i think you know the we know the story of beast on track and we we kind of know what happened in the in the 94 and 500 but for me the the build-up from start to to actually get into the race is is just as interesting so let, let's touch back on that and i think you know obviously roger made the decision to to build this really expensive and unusual engine with with marillion and after that meeting in phoenix that we mentioned and i guess you know, CAD's kind of in its infancy at this stage. No one has really built a pushrod engine on this scale before in this time frame to these kind of, you know, specifications. So, you know, Jade, from 
from your research in the book, as we've kind of alluded, alluded to earlier on, a lot of the people in your book don't, didn't know each other or didn't work with each other. You know, there were people who just did their job and, and that was kind of the end of it. So if we go back to that early kind of phase of development, you know, what were the biggest challenges that the guys at, at Ilmore were facing there before the engines even kind of got to the States? Well, initially the challenge was it was such a short time frame that Mario and the designers, they really had to make certain assumptions. And there was always the prospect that if this failed or that failed, it, it, it could all collapse. Uh, the crankshaft was the, the piece that took the longest to uh, construct or to build. So it became the first item designed. Um, then you had um, the challenge that Mario had promised Roger that this new engine, a bigger capacity engine, would fit exactly into the PC23 chassis that the, the quote regular engine would. So you had Mario trying to fit 10 pounds of flour in an eight pound bag. Um, and those things you just, they, they had to just take this leap of faith that they um, were gonna be able to make, make that work. I, to me, that was most fascinating is that uh, you know, normally you'd have chance to make some adjustments here and there, but the timing on this was so critical that, um, you know, you couldn't afford a major issue. Uh, the biggest moment, I guess, from a lot of aspects is that early in the, the dyno testing, and Kevin might have insight onto this, it, it was still more powerful than the, the quote, the normal engine, but it was not meeting what they had really hoped for. They were disappointed in its overall power. And Ilmore's resident professor, Jeff Williams, had, had done some immense mathematical ca calculations and came up with um, ideas that were sort of counterintuitive. They didn't make sense to Mario initially, uh, that they were to um, soften some things up that again, just intuitively didn't seem to make sense. But once they tried, uh, the engine went from 800 some horsepower to uh, the final adjusted horsepower was 1024. So more than a thousand horsepower due to these crazy mathematical suggestions and changes from uh, their resident uh, professor, their resident, resident brainiac. Um, and, um, it was a bit of a fight early on. Like I say, Mario didn't quite understand or didn't believe that it would make a difference, but when they tried it, it was a huge difference. And that, that was a launch really to, um, to go forward from that exact moment. They never again tried to produce more horsepower. They only focused on getting it to last 500 miles. Yeah, I guess um, Mario being um, kind of disappearing off. I think uh, he'd gone away for the weekend, or maybe taking a break. And they tried they tried the changes without him to, uh, <laughs> to to show that it worked. I've got all that. Okay, seriously. So this is the first the first engine that ran on the on the dyno. You know, Ilmore always makes a big uh, a big deal every year about the debut of their new engine, and this is really for the benefit of all the people that work and slave in house. And so the first build of the first engine tends to be rather ceremonial uh, and uh, and very hardly fixed to a, a, a deadline. 
And so the night before the first firing, everybody that had their, was involved with it was literally on the floor doing assembly, uh, various bits and pieces, pumps, et cetera. And so the engine build was completed. And then the next day starting up, uh, you know, with a little bit of teething problem, the engine wouldn't start right away. This was a bank angle uh, and, a, and the, the, uh, the, the timing of the center V that, that uh, allows you to differentiate between the four strokes of the cycle. So there was some fooling around there on the first firing. It fired up. Everybody in the factory is standing around clapping. Voila, you know, we've, we've done it. So then, uh, and, and, and don't forget the champagne. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, then, uh, and then later on, you start getting after it a little bit, you know, so the social atmosphere goes down and people kind of go back to work and you start really, you know, beyond the break in on the dynamometer, then you start putting, uh, putting the engine at wide open throttle. And the first results were, uh, they were in my eyes, wonderful because the, the number was around 860 horsepower. And uh, as Jade had said, we were nominally with our best, uh, uh, four cam engines. We were in the 820 to 830 horsepower range at the time. So right out of the box, you're looking at a 30 horsepower advantage, which is huge in motorsports. You know, that when you're when you're down at that level and uh, similar configurations, you're looking for every five horsepower for sure. So, so uh, and of course, uh, Roger's still back in the states, and I can remember Mario coming out of the upstairs office onto a platform. He had just uh, spoken with Roger on the phone and he gave me the, you know, the universal telephone sign and said, RP, you know, on, on the on the telephone, like wanting to talk. And uh, so I, I pick up the phone downstairs. Uh, and Roger, you know, how's it going? He, so he's, well, well, how's it look? You know, what, what's I said, well, we're, we're at 860 horsepower. The thing looks great. And, you know, there was a bit of silence. And then it was, well, really, I want 900. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, he had he was sold on that number for sure. And uh, and rightfully so. I mean, because that would have been 75 horsepower over what uh, what the conventional engines were making at the time. Uh, so, you know, I assured him it was early days. We had just barely you know, gotten the thing to run and uh, thought we had a pretty good result and agreed. To, of course, just, you know, keep digging, as they say. Uh, but. The after the power testing, and we took that first engine apart and we pulled the cylinder heads, we could see piston to valve contact on the intake valves randomly on over half the cylinders, five or six cylinders, where you'd say, Oh, number one intake valves touching piston. Oh, number eight. So you start wondering really what's going on. And early on, that was a very strong clue that the valve train itself was severely out of time due to these torsional harmonics and, and the way that the whole mechanical system was being excited. And uh, this was when the talk started about detuning the cam because the cam, you know, the thought was if you, if you, if you have that much, that many dynamics in the system, the cam is potentially too aggressive. And that was bantered about back and forth, uh, you know, uh, between Paul, Mario, Jeff Williams, some of the other builders, etc., and it really was uh, that uh, Mario took a long weekend. He went off scuba diving or <laughs> snorkeling. I'm not sure what. And this was the opportunity for Paul to suggest to Jeff, "Hey, why don't you try to soften this thing up a little bit and let's see where we end up?" And of course, the, the rest of that is history. We had a new cam within maybe ten days. And once fired on the dyno, the engine was 
at that time, easily up 920, 930 horsepower. So it was clearly at that point, immediately 100 horsepower over our four cam best. And as Jade pointed out, I mean, there was still a lot of calibration work and things like that over the course of those months. But really from a performance development standpoint, that, that was the last major thing done. And it was done two or three weeks into the program just to calm everything down. Oh, such fantastic insight on the engine. And if you're um, if you're a bit unsure of how a push rod works and the differences in engines, there's some fantastic diagrams in uh, Beast. So another shameless plug for for Jade's book to get to get your copy of that out and have a look at some of the diagrams of how the push rod works. Because I've got no shame in saying that I did not understand how that engine worked until I read Beast and the the diagrams give, give a really good hands. So. Uh, and speaking of those, actually, the first, the first lines were were drawn for the engine on July 19th, and 26 weeks later, the engine was up for the first time running, as we've just discussed, uh, after some of those problems that, that you guys mentioned there, and the project could really start ramping up after that. So I guess when the engines got to Penske, Kevin, they couldn't just be whacked into the PC23 chassis in the middle of Penske's regular workshop <laughs> in, in Reading. So, um, so the small garage down the street was used and they had to uh, wheel things between the two at night. So as the person who was kind of tasked with looking after these engines, what was it, the feeling of excitement like when they arrived? Knowing knowing what you knew, you knew the numbers and you'd seen some of the, the things that had been happening in, in Ilmore. And also tell us about what it was like to work at the Taj Mahal as well. <laughs> really, Ilmore, you know, I was over there for four weeks in early January, essentially escort the engine back uh, separately, but uh, in preparation for that first Nazareth test in late in late February. So Ilmore themselves really did the final fit assembly buildup of those first couple of engines uh, when I was over there. And then when you say the engines arrived from uh, the UK, really these engines were kit form, right? And so all of the, they, they were very, they're beautifully machined, uh, and the kits were nominally complete. And you can imagine there's hundreds and hundreds of parts, but really the process from the engine build standpoint is, you know, do your unpacking, do all the careful measurements, the setup of the engines, et cetera, et cetera, deburring, washing, and then assemble, dyno test and take it to the track. So that process started uh, in earnest after the first, uh, after the first track test. Uh, and we needed, of course, to do that kind of work, we needed a place that was out of the way and uh, away from the other team. Fortunately, Roger had a, a it was a, an Allison transmission shop that was literally a couple of parking lots away there in Reading, where Penske has his big uh, corporate uh, plaza complex. And uh, so, you know, in the week before, the first week of January, before I went over to England for the first build, uh, I was in that shop. I was working with Mark McCardo, who was uh, another one of the key players in this whole program. Um, he was a Penske racing engine builder and had just joined, moved over to Ilmore. And so when I went to England, he started setting up the shop, knowing what was coming. And I mean, this is literally like getting rid of stacks of tires and, you know, the place was <laughs> filthy and it was just a concrete block bunker really. But we had to set up a place where we could do a parts washing and quickly do an ad hoc ventilation system. So we didn't all die of the solvent fumes and, you know, and good lighting and workbenches and, and a place for inventory. And it was, it was set up and, and, uh, 
And it was christened Taj Mahal by Roger himself, who on his first visit down there came in and looked around, you know, and, and commented, well, this looks pretty good. You guys got a good place to work. And I, I'm sure I was complaining about something, whether it was not enough lighting or not enough bench space or store space. And he just looked at me and said, well, you know, you can't make this into the Taj Mahal. You don't have time. Right? And so <laughs> we did not. But, you know, the key aspects of it was it was secure, it was clean, and it was literally, uh, you know, two blocks away from the race shop that housed the engine dynamometer. And so, you know, we could do all the building and everything we wanted in the Taj Mahal. But at the end, we had to wait for everybody in the Penske race shop to bail and go home for the evening. And then that's when we started our second day of taking the engine down there, you know, putting the, of course it had, even though it fit in the same chassis, it had different fixturing, different plumbing and such for the dyno. And so you're doing all this conversion work, get the dyno tested. And of course those tests were never smooth. There was this, that, and the other problems. Uh, and it's a new prototype piece. You're trying to be careful, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, because by the way, this engine wasn't going to do anything except get checked for power, inspect it, and then sent right to the racetrack. Uh, you know, for, for the real durability test. So organizing that uh, and the dyno testing late at night, Carl Kainhofer, who was running the engine program at the time, he was the only guy running the dyno uh, in, in for Rogers IndyCar program for years and years and years. So he would come back in the evenings and run. So he was doing a double shift as well in the same way that the Ilmore designers in the early days of drawing valves and pistons and, and gears were doing it on the sly. And then of course we'd finish with the engine test and we'd have to put everything back just exactly <laughs> as we found it, you know, <laughs> uh, and get out of there, you know, sometimes midnight, sometimes three. Well, I mean, we, we had, a, we definitely had a drop dead date of before five because the other people would be coming in. But there were times where we narrowly got out of there because of one thing or the other. I, I like to think there's a, there's a conspiracy theory out there that the the Penske janitor of the time sort of stumbled in at one o'clock in the morning one day and was was the first non-Penske person to hear Beast and didn't even know what was going on. I guess <laughs> no. I, <laughs> let me let me stop you. Actually, the first people that had any inkling that was going on were two police officers and a large German shepherd that came in after midnight working in that shop one night because I didn't realize the alarms automatically set at midnight. And this is when we were first kind of transitioning to get some work done in the, in the real rice shop, as opposed to the Taj Mahal. And those guys came right in the back door and started yelling, Hey, you know, who's here, that kind of stuff with their dog. <laughs> and so I had to go out and explain, actually, I work for Roger and, and, you know, <laughs> please let us go about our business type thing. So. Speaking of that kind of conspiracy, I guess at this point, you know, both companies are doing all they can to, to keep things secret. And as you mentioned earlier, so much outsourcing was done for different parts and stuff. So that was really difficult. And, you know, as we talked about earlier, the, the, the thing was kind of labeled the Pontiac NASCAR engine, which is, uh, is just fantastic. But in today's world of kind of social media and stuff like that, it's just impossible to believe that a full team and an engine manufacturer could design, develop and test an engine over an eight month period without anyone finding out. It's absolutely incredible. But I guess from, from an IC test in February at Nazareth, that kicked things off, as we uh, alluded to a little bit earlier, and a track owned by Penske, but one that Mario Andretti could hear from his window, which I guess presented its own problems at this point for secrecy as uh, Penske's kind of arch nemesis at this stage. 
But Kevin, before I kind of kick on and, and we go to, to Alonso Jr. for his memories of, of Beast, uh, do you remember that first test specifically and any stories or emotions that kind of come flooding back to you, you know, thinking about that that first test and a very icy Nazareth Oval? <laughs> well, they're, you know, uh, they tend to blur together, to be honest. The first test was, uh, you know, the, the car had arrived. We had prepped the car, uh, you know, the night before and then getting out there on track. I mean, the, the uh, maybe the biggest thing to remember was uh, Al's impression. Little Al was our first driver there, and you know he was uh, over the moon with the engine because it was it was easy to drive. You know, tons of torque and really powerful. And of course, despite the track conditions, you know the car is running around there relatively com- uh, competitively in the in the twenty second bracket sort of sort of thing in Nazareth. And this is with stone cold tires and you know racetrack at 30, 30 degrees Fahrenheit. So, uh, you know, probably the hope that we took out of there, knowing that, again, if we could make this thing go 500 miles, we were going to have an advantage. And, uh, you know, you know, Roger Penske history and the history of Penske racing, the Indy 500 is everything. And so that was uh, just a huge motivation factor uh, just to see that first test go off. And, you know, the first engine, we ran 150 miles and we took it out of the car. We said, okay, that's a good shakedown, good hard run. It's never done anything like that on the dyno. You know, it was just really uh, a shorter performance test to verify and to tune for max power. And there's a lot of things going on at the racetrack. Uh, You know, you're at different throttle angles, especially at Nazareth with a big lift at, at either end of that. So you're working, you're running in areas where, you haven't done much fuel calibration work or anything else like that. So, you know, you tend to start easy because you're, you're hoping to get the engine back in one piece and disassemble so that you can begin to build your history. You know, what are the wear patterns look like? What is, how does the valve lash change over, over this? It's all these things that you need to understand to be able to build something consistently that would go 500 miles, you know, this, that starts with the first running off at the racetrack. So uh, good memories, but I mean, you say an icy track at Nazareth or an icy test at Nazareth, man, there was a lot of them. I, I look back at my notes and we had from that uh, February 20th date until March 7th. So we're talking about 17 days. We were at Nazareth six different times. Okay, across the, it was unheard of sort of a pace for development of trying to with an Indy car on the track. And it was relentless. And thank goodness that Nazareth was only half drive. You know, that was the only thing that enabled us, even down to the grounds crew at Nazareth, to be constantly clearing the track because it's still no joke. Yeah, it's a one mile oval, but, you know, they're going 180, 190 miles an hour as such around that. And the, you know, it, it had to be right from the safety standpoint. Uh, and of course, uh, all that was just part of the Penske execution. I like, um, I like Al's kind of recollection of, of things, which we'll, we'll go to in just a second. I mean, people think mm. the 90s was, uh, you know, the the era of glamour and IndyCar racing, but getting frostbite in your toes from uh, <laughs> a, a, aiming, aiming the most powerful engine in IndyCar history at, at a short right. oval like that, you know, with with big yeah. kind of icy snowbanks uh, right. as well as the wall on the other side, you know, absolutely <laughs> crazy. So let's, uh, without further ado, let's cross over to Alan Sr. Jr. and hear some of his memories of Beast. 
The checkered flag waves, and Al Unser Jr. has won the 78th running of the Indianapolis 500. Al Unser Jr. becomes a two-time winner of the Speed Classic on Memorial Day weekend in Indianapolis, Indiana. All right, well, Alan Junior, thanks so much for for joining us on uh, the race podcast. It's really great to have you. Um, it's it's some way to launch our podcast for the first episode to have a true legend of American motorsport joining us. Um, I'm going to flatter you a bit now, so you're going to have to put up with this, okay? So, two Indianapolis 500 wins in '92 and '94, a double IndyCar title winner in 1990 and 1994, and among other things, a double Daytona 24 Hours winner as well. So it seems like you don't like winning things once. You like to uh, you like to win things a few times. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, thanks for, for for having us on, and and it's great to be here. Awesome, awesome. Well, obviously you're here to talk about Beast, and we've been talking about that elsewhere in in the podcast as well. Obviously, Jade Gers, the uh, Beast author, will be uh, with us at various points in the podcast. You were the first driver to learn even about the project, um, and that must have been a big thing for you, but come into a team where, you know, your father and your uncle had both won 500s and here you were joining the team and, and learning about this ace new engine. What was it like to, to hear Roger's plans for that? Um, well, you know, yes, we, uh, we, we, we put our deal together there in the middle of the summer of, of 93. And, and then once we got near the end of the, of the season, Roger and I started talking more and more and more and, and, uh, and at, we were actually at a, at a baseball game fundraiser. And uh, I think it was up, up in Nazareth. And, um, and he just kind of, we were in the dugout there and, and, and uh, he, he kind of whispered it to me. We've, we've, we've got an engine coming, he said. <laughs> so uh, I went great. You know, actually it was just proof of what Roger Penske racing is and why I wanted to drive for him. You know, he sets the standard in, in, in all of IndyCar and, and had for a long time. It's the reason why my uncle Bobby drove for him. It's the reason why my dad drove for him uh, because there's uh, there's no stone unturned with, with Roger. And, and when he whispered it to me, I just, my first feeling was, was, well, but of course, you know, I mean, that's, that's uh that's why Roger is who he is. And, and so uh, I just looked at it and went, great, great, love it, you know? So, yeah. I guess, you know, you've just made this massive move to, to Penske, which, you know, you'd mentioned you'd been working on for, for a little while and you were probably fancying your chances at that point. And then, you know, you know Honda is coming in for, for this season and also there's obviously some, some other major manufacturers there as well. And, you know, you join in Roger and then he tells you that, you're going to have a brand new engine and it's going to be built in, in the matter of months. So was there any kind of worry on your behalf that, you know, you're always faith in the decision to join Roger, but was there any worry in the fact that you're going to have this new engine built in, in just a few months there? Not, not at first. There was no worries about it at first. <laughs> and so, uh, but then once we started testing it and, um, and it wasn't living, you know, sometimes it'd go, 300 miles and then the next time we run it it only goes 200 miles and and so it was a it was a one-off engine for the indy 500 and and so um once we started running it and testing it and it wasn't it was not going the distance that little worry started creeping in you know and and uh but you know i mean um with roger 
Ilmore, they were working on it so hard. And, and, um, you know, I was just, we, we did bring it down to the wire. You know, I mean, it was, it was opening day at Indy practice when I was at Michigan and we finally completed 500 miles. And so that was just a big relief. I mean, you know, Roger was there and, uh, and he was, you could see the relief on him too. <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I don't think there's been many teams down the years who've uh, completed their first 500 miles on an IndyCar engine at a different venue as Indianapolis opens for that event. That's pretty uh, yeah. unprecedented, right? <laughs> yep. Um, I guess, you know, the first test was at Nazareth on February the 20th, which we know from from Jade's excellent book. And they literally had to clear snow away from the track and your feet were freezing inside the car. I mean, you can't have learned much about the car in, in, in those temperatures, but, you know, were you worried that the little known family, you know, Mario Andretti just down the road from, from Nazareth could hear the car going around the speedway? Was there any worry that the word was going to leak out at that point? Yeah. At first, when when Roger says we're gonna we're gonna unload it at Nazareth, and I go, "Are you sure you want to <laughs> unload it at Nazareth?" I mean, you know, the Andretti family's just right up the street, and he goes, "Yeah, yeah, we got to do it there." And and uh, and so, uh, no, I didn't really think too much about it. You know, I was more worried about uh, how they plowed the track, <laughs> and and uh, I was kind of like in this snow tunnel around Nazareth where I've got the concrete wall on my right. And then at the edge of the track on the left, you've got a four foot snow wall and that went all the way around the track. And, and so, uh, yeah, that was, that was just, you know, we, we really couldn't tell much there because it was so cold and it took so many laps to, to just get some temperature in the tires to, to halfway run it decent. And, um, but again, it was too small. You know, I was, I was, we were needing to get to a big track. So. For sure. And I, I guess, you know, if we jump forward a little bit, you know, rumors did start to kind of leak out and, and people did start to kind of, you know, talk a little bit about what, you know, Penske was planning and, and what Ilmore were, were planning. But, you know, your father and uncle must have been, you know, desperate to find out if the project was true and hear the rumors, you know, if, if they were true. And I know over the years, they kind of kept setups from you and kind of, you've all been really competitive and kind of kept things to yourselves and, and not kind of shared too much over the years for being so competitive. So it must've been nice for you to have the shoe on the other foot there and, and have the, the secret engine in the bag. <laughs> well, they actually, you know, they, they didn't hear nothing about it until we got to uh, Phoenix race and, uh, and, and I had both dad and uncle Bobby in my motor home going, what, what's this about an engine? And I just, I just would shrug my shoulders and go, I don't know what you're talking about. And, and <laughs> my dad was kind of okay with it, but uncle Bobby, he got mad. He, he left the motor home and slammed the door and, you know, and, but, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was, it was great to have, you know, that shoe on the other foot and, and so on, but I couldn't, I couldn't tell them. I, I couldn't, you know, and so, uh, so, but the world found out when uh, opening day at Indy. Sure. So. And, and, you know, you, you kind of alluded to not being able to, to stretch the car's legs at, at Nazareth, obviously, because the circuit's just too, well, the oval's too, too short, but I mean, you know, the, when the car actually got on track, when, what was the point where you actually realized what you had? And, you know, I guess, some, you know, the other drivers have said that it wasn't even till practice that you really knew how, you know, how good the engine was. But when, when did that moment kind of click for you? Do, do you recall that? 
it was it was at Michigan when we finally uh, got there and started running it. And uh, and, you know, the engine was way strong, was way strong. And, And so every time we came back and tested at Michigan, there was a little less power and a little less power you know, to try to make it live. And, and, and so, but those opening days, those, those first few tests, that, that thing was really strong, really strong. And so, uh, but it wasn't going the distance. And so that was uh, that, you know, like I said earlier, the worrying kind of snuck in and, and cause, cause it, it wasn't living. And so, you know, but once we got it to live, it was still stronger than the other, than, than the other engines. And so, we were good. And I guess when, you know, when we eventually get to the, the actual 500 and, and, and the build up to it, I guess you couldn't even, you know, it was a difficult thing to even stretch the, the legs of the engine because obviously Roger didn't want everyone to find out what you had and, you know, the, the, the boost pressure situation, you didn't want that being changed before the race. So how difficult was that as a driver from, from your perspective, you know, not knowing what the car could actually do because you were, you know, holding so much back in, in the build up to the, to the race? Well, um, you know, it was, it, it was really quick down the straightaways, you know, and, and so, um, you know, as far as a, a lap time, we were, you know, Roger was concerned that uh, if we did put a, a strong lap time in there that they could, you know, reduce the boost and, and, and so on. And so um, I, I didn't even really worry about it because it was just so fast down the straightaways that, uh, that, that we had uncovered no matter what was going to be the case. So. I guess you're talking about the speed down the straightaway is obviously one story that's been talked mm-hmm. about before yeah. is the, yeah. the wheels spinning inside the tires. You know, what, when, when, you, when you get out of a car and you see that the car you've just driven is, is literally spinning the wheels through the tires, what, what does that feel like? Um, it was a, a fantastic feeling. What can I say? I mean, it, I'd it, be terrified. <laughs> it had so much power and so much torque. Is, is really where it was at. So, yeah. Unbelievable. I mean, you took the pole with the time of 228 miles an hour. Qualifying was washed out for, for Fittipaldi and obviously Paul was, Paul Tracy was recovering from the concussion after his uh, happy hour crash. And then at the beginning of the race, you led the first chunk before stalling in the pits, which you've talked about before as being one of your few yeah. errors that you've made at Indianapolis over the years. And also your, your radio was on the, on the fritz as well, I think in, in the build up to the race and also during as well. So I guess, you know, at that point when you know your radio is not working and, or it's at least intermittent and then you make a bit of a mistake in, in pits, you know, how do you kind of come back from that and, and recover? Were you just confident that the, the car was so strong that you could pull it all back at that point? Um, well, you know, I was really just racing my teammates. I was racing Emerson and, and Paul. Um, Emerson was, was the main competitor. And, and once I stalled it in the pits, he was able to get in front of me and then he, he, um, he was able to pull away. And so um, not having the radios, you know, um, you know, there was things lining up there that, uh, that, that this may not be my day. Okay. So, get, get as many points as we can, because that's what we're, we're, we're there to win the championship and so on. And, and then, um, and then Emerson, you know, um, made his mistake and, uh, and that allowed me to, to, to get in the lead. And, but again, we were only racing each other, me and Emerson. And so, um, and so it just turned out to be our day, you know, 
I guess, um, you know, that kind of goes back to your, your early, early days as well, that you kind of practice the hand gestures and stuff like that. So you got the hand gestures and you had the, I think Penske had the, the kind of text message system on, on the dash as well. So, you know, you were quite, even though the radio going was a, a massive issue, you were, you seemed like you were kind of quite well, well prepared for that, or at least you'd prepared for that situation happening. Yeah, we were prepared for it. And, and, and honestly, I didn't really realize we didn't have radios until they started putting a board out and asking me questions. And, and I went, Oh, we must have radio problems, you know, and, and so because I was so new to the team, you know, Roger, he talks almost every single lap. He, he feeds us information. And, and so I hadn't uh, I really wasn't used to that yet. And so it wasn't until I saw a, a question on the board that, uh, you know, oh, we don't have radios. And so um, it was something that my dad and and uncle told me to always be prepared for and that, you know, we can, if we do lose radios, you can answer a yes or no question. Uh, and, and the next lap by, you would answer the question, either a closed fist is a no, an open hand is a yes. And we started getting so good at it <laughs> that they were, they were putting like, like, big long sentence you know and it took me it took me like two or three laps to read what the question was and and so uh but we were we were good at it and and you know we were able to to make changes to the car on the pit stops and all that so yeah awesome and just to set the scene a bit for for people who are listening back who don't maybe don't remember you know the exact kind of things that happened in the race but Fittipaldi had to stop for a, we think it was a plastic bag in the radiator on the 132nd lap and that put him off sync in terms of the pit stop. So he was desperately trying to pass you to put a lap on you so that if you did make it to the end on fuel, then he would be, he would be able to uh, kind of get out of that situation, I guess. But I mean, knowing the engine was new and it wasn't, it hadn't been designed to run at slower speeds, right? So, you know, you were coming to the end and you were finishing under caution or, or at least there was a, a kind of a lengthy caution period towards the end of the race. And then, it, mm-hmm. and then actually it transpired after the race that your, your alternator control unit had failed as well. But, you know, what was those last few laps like knowing that the engine hadn't been designed to kind of do that and you know, just trying to edge it out to the end, I guess. I heard, I, I was so nervous. I heard every little <laughs> sound, every little felt, every little crack in the road. I mean, those, those, those last couple laps were uh, were were just torture, you know, because they, they, we were going so slow, and I was just going, "Please don't stall on me, please don't, you know, don't just keep running, keep running," you know. Unlike my first victory in in '92 with Scott Goodyear, I didn't have any of those feelings, you know, because we were racing, and the only thing I was I was thinking about was keeping Scott behind me. So I didn't, I didn't have time to think about other things. You know, if, if the engine's going to run or not, we're 94, we were under yellow and you had all kinds of time to think about all kinds <laughs> of different things. So, um, but again, it, it, it stayed running. So yeah. <laughs> That's the main thing. <laughs> I yeah. guess, um, you know, Roger was the only one who, you know, took the leap on the, on the push rod project. And, you know, obviously he was in a position where he could, you know, he had the resource to do it and Ilmore were, you know, willing to supply the engine, but I guess, you know, he kind of saw everything through from start to finish is, is what I'm getting at here. You know, he, he was the one who decided to go with the project. Um, and right back down to the fact that he was your race strategist on the day. So he's like top and bottom, right. He's at the grassroots working with the team, 
you know, doing that, all yes. that, but making the big decisions about, about the engine as well. So, you know, what does that say about Roger? Do you think, you know, the, the fact that he's like top and bottom making the big decisions? Hey, yeah. Roger, you know, working for him is just a, a, a real treat. It's a real honor, you know, and, and because he is so involved, you know, and, and, um, and quite frankly, with, with all the car owners that I drove for, Roger was the one that, that knew what I was going through as a driver better than any of the, my, my strategists before, yeah. you know? And, and so, um, Roger, I mean, the, the, the information that, that he gives us every lap was, was valuable information about what, what's going on in the race. And like, like, as if he was in the driver's seat, wanting to know these, these answers to, to, uh, to questions. And so, you know, it, it was just a real honor, a real, a real blessing to be able to, to drive for him. Yeah, and I, I guess adding a, a ninth Unser win at Indianapolis as well, and to do it for a team that, you know, your family had done it for as well, you know, that must've meant so much more to you than just an Indy 500 win, you know, just the, the bits around it. Yeah, it was cool. It was cool. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you remember, do you recall your kind of feeling? Cause you talked a bit about, you know, the, the worry over the past few laps of, of what was going to happen with the car, you know, do you, was it just pure relief at, at the end of the finish that you got to the end? <laughs> to say the least, you know, <laughs> we got the checkered and it was all done. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, that whole effort that it, it all, uh, accumulated, you know, in, in, uh, the goal that we, we set for ourselves and, and it all, it all came true, you know, and, and so that's, uh, that in itself is its, is, is its own reward and, and so gratifying. And I guess for anyone who doesn't know, you've got a, a book coming out that's going to be written by Beast author Jade Gerst. Mm-hmm. What do you, you know, what made you think now is the right time to kind of commit your, your story to paper? Because it's, you know, it's such an amazing story and I, I kind of wish you'd told it earlier, but, you know, what's, what's been the reason for, for doing it now and, and making that move? Um, I did. I, I, quite honestly, it's it's a time in my life that uh, you know I'm I'm wanting to give back. You know, I'm I'm actually a a driver coach on uh, on on some uh, Formula Four SCCA Formula Four racing and and you know helping the kids. We've got one one little girl, 16. Her name's Chloe Chambers, and she's doing a great job. And and it's just so it's such a good feeling and. and within me when I'm helping these kids and passing on, you know, what, what was, what was freely given to me through my dad and my uncle. And, uh, and so, you know, it, uh, I just felt it was time. And, you know, I, I know Jade, he does a a fantastic job with, with the books and, and of course with the beast. And so uh, we contacted him and, and, and asked him if he'd be interested. And, and he said, heck yeah. So uh, there we are. You know, you don't have to say nice things about Jay just because he's on the podcast, right? Yeah, no worries. <laughs> <laughs> Alan Junior, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Races First uh, Retro IndyCar podcast. So when we've got 2 million listens, we'll, uh, we'll name the podcast after you and make it the, awesome. uh, the Races Alan Junior podcast. What do you think about that? I would love that. I would love that. Roger Penske just beginning his sprint up pit road. We'll try and hold on to him, but getting through all the well-wishers is tough. We'll go at a run and join PA, Roger Penske. This guy, Al Unzer Jr., is fantastic. I just can't uh, tell you how much I appreciate the job he did today. And MO drove so strong. uh, I guess it's all over. Thanks.
All right, welcome back. Great memories there and ones that I'm sure Jade and Kevin, who have rejoined me here, won't mind hearing again. So let's get back to the build-up to the Indy 500, even if Little Al has spoiled the result for us now. And a bit more of that in-depth info behind the development of the engine. So I guess all the in- all engines have teething problems in, in general, especially when you put them in a new chassis um, and a chassis, the one that, that, that the engine's not been built for, I guess. But I guess because of the time frame and, and the build, Kevin, you were doing a lot more trial and error testing than you probably usually would with, a, <laughs> with an engine at this stage. Give us a, a little bit of a taste of you know, what that was like from a, from, from this perspective, you know, so much different to any, any other engine, I guess you've dealt with in the past in terms of how much kind of R and D work you were doing at the test, you know, usually an engine had come prepared, right. And you're having to do all this work with the engine. Well, Ilmore did a, a wonderful job on design and, and generally the manufacturer, but I think all, all the teams, uh, even with the four cam engines, you know, the first, the first builds, uh, start off as really as a baseline and it takes some time to build up that history you end up with different classifications of parts. You know, you have parts that are just simply consumable parts, piston rings and bearings and such. And if they do the job for the for one race distance, you know, you can pretty much count on those. Um, it's the parts that you typically mileage uh, because you just wouldn't, you know, keep track of the miles, I would say. You're trying to establish the useful life. And the intent is you don't want to build a brand new engine, zero miles, everything, and say, okay, now I'm ready to go start the, you know, the, the 500, even, even a fully developed engine. You're looking for some history, a couple of hundred miles on the components, uh, on the parts that are typically reused, like blocks and heads and crankshafts, uh, so that you have a, it's a known quantity and you, and you eliminate another small class of failures, maybe instant failures that, that you, you, you would otherwise potentially run into. But really, the, when you say uh, development, our, our, our development was more than anything trying to identify the failure modes, you know, what happened. And that can be extremely challenging because you can imagine as, uh, as the car is on the track, you know, going down the back stretch at 9,000 RPM and something happens, it goes from a beautifully functioning machine to an absolute plane wreck in about a second. And you, typically the indicators that people think of um, that happen uh, you know, prior to the failure, like loss of oil pressure or overheating, things like that. You know, we're not talking about any failures like that. Those are, those are you know, you have actually some warning that is coming, even if it's seconds. But we're talking about piston failures uh, where the pin boss would fail. And at that point, you've got seven pistons still participating in the power production and one piston that's, you know, come to bits. And now the small end of the connecting rod is loose and you've got a 700 horsepower chainsaw uh, in the back of the car because the the engine's literally cutting itself, uh, you know, in the process of dropping everything out on, on the ground. Um, you know, the uh, cam followers, you know, we had a lot of development with cam followers. These were some of the parts that made that infamous trip, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the Mustang to the Concorde, et cetera. Uh, but uh, a cam follower failure was another immediate, no warning type failure. You drop a cylinder and by the time you got the engine stopped, the amount of mechanical damage was really ch- challenging to work through. And- and then get to figuring out, well, what went first? Because the Ilmore guys had to know 
what failed first, right? There's no sense in doing modifications to all this, what we would call peripheral damage, engine parts. Oh, they're damaged too, but no, they're just part of this failure that started with X. And so when you say we're doing a lot of development and testing, cut and try, it was, it was probably five months, four or five months of development that was just condensed into some number of weeks. But it was really, it wasn't like we were redesigning parts or anything on our end. We were documenting what happened, get that information back to that Elmore, and then they made the next steps, whether it was an in-house manufacturing change or working with a vendor, et cetera. So um, that process, that it's a looping process that you know I've used throughout my career really for mechanical development. And it's simply down to the fact that if you've got some long ways to go with mechanical development and machine, uh, whether it's a racing engine or such, you know, the, the more you can iterate, if you're running under target load and operating conditions, then the more you can test and iterate, the faster you can do that loop, provided you have the engineering support behind you to make the changes necessary, then you're going to get to the finish line first. Uh, you know, it speeds up everything. So you have to have that aggression in the program. And it was because of the combined Penske and Ilmore resources and capabilities that we were able to really push that. I got to say, uh, it might be uh, kicking you between the legs, but the the roller bearings with the, the 3,000 pins in, they must have been an absolute nightmare. Well, that's so funny because that, that's the cam follower, okay? And that was one of the failure points of the motor. And so we had many, many iterations of cam followers, some with, uh, you know, how they retained the pin and the roller in the actual follower itself, the, the, uh, the, the material specification, the heat treat, the oiling into the pushrod end. And so each one of these followers, and so, you know, and again, I check my notes on this, each one of these followers had 106 needle roller bearings, okay? And of course, there's 16 of them. So the number is 1,696 needle roller bearings in just the cam follower assembly. Now, the thing is, these are small. They are really small. For us, for a normal human, you're not, you can't even pick these needle rollers up with your fingertips, okay? So the idea was you'd hold a, a cam follower in one hand and you have a pencil with grease on the tip of it. And you would literally, you're transferring the needle follower with this grease and placing it in. So you're loading 106 and you weren't counting because there's just only 106 that would fit in this location. So you didn't have to count. So you get them all in there. And so, that's extremely time consuming. And the follower was such a fertile area of development, meaning we always had new ones coming. We ended up coming up with some fixturing that would allow us to take an old follower and put the needle roller bearings in that and say that's 10 minutes per follower. And then we could easily use this fixture to transfer that, those loaded needle roller bearings into a new follower. So you just slide them right across. And so we hired a high school intern that was sitting there most of the day loading needle rollers into the next batch of followers that we can. And so you look, let's say, where do you come up with that? Well, it is just efficiencies that you have to do out of necessity to meet the timeline, right? So you're just cranking through this stuff. But uh, that was a very simple but effective way to really allow us to quickly get something because, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to 
have Paul Morgan fly it down in the Mustang, bring it across on the Concord, and then you're sitting there watching one guy for six hours put these needle roller <laughs> bearings into the collars, right? So it's like boom, boom. We got it, and you know we could we could unpack that stuff and and have the have the engine running uh, within two hours on the dyno. Uh, given that the cam follower, you know, you could you could stage the engine build such that the last thing was to go in was valve train pumps, finish it up and go. So go ahead. Yep. I guess um, I guess we'd still find some of those little pins in uh, in Indy, Nazareth and Michigan in the the pits. (laughs) That's really fun. You know, Grant Grant Newberry, who was a chassis engineer and looking after really the car side of testing from an engineering perspective uh, for all the development. He brought back in 1996 he brought back a piece of tape with three or four needle roller bearings stuck on it that he had found in the cracks of michigan because again knowing that this the cracks of the michigan concrete uh knowing that this process had to go at post haste we would not even take the engine out of the car that failed and send it back to reading where you would typically tear it down in your shop no we were just taking it out of the car taking it to bits right there in the garage. We had a fax machine, type up the report, get the information to Ilmore and try to get some sleep because <laughs> new parts were coming shortly. <laughs> I guess um, the the car got out to, to Michigan um, later in the testing cycle. And that's when Alonso Jr. told us earlier that he knew what the car was when, when he was out of Michigan, when he, when he could stretch it, stretch its legs. Um, but such was yeah. the down to the wire nature of the project. Uh, the car didn't complete 500 miles until the opening day of Indianapolis testing when you guys had stayed in Michigan and kind of avoided the first day of uh, Indianapolis testing, which must be absolutely unheard of up until uh, this point. But the engine was unveiled in the lead up to the event on April 13th. It's Mercedes that had its name on. Um, JG later went on to work for Mercedes uh, before spending a lot of time with uh, Dale Hernot Jr. Um, but what was the response to the engine when it was finally unveiled? You know, what were people kind of saying about it, and how much of a secret was it still at this point when it had been um, announced on on April the thirteenth? Well, it the details had still been secret. Uh, there had been a few rumors start to bubble up, but no one really had an idea that this was was happening. Even within Mercedes itself, uh, the great quote is there were more cylinders in the engine than there were people at Mercedes that that knew this was happening uh, until it was announced. So it it was just it was secret till the very end. Um, and when it was announced, uh, you know, all the competitors sort of predictably went uh, went ape shit about it. And, <laughs> You know, they knew that uh, that this is uh, this is an amazing feat, and if it if it did last, or if it would last, that it was as as Kevin put it, it was a huge advantage. So uh, it was uh, particularly scary for the other uh, other competitors. I guess um, you know perhaps the fact that we will never see anything like this happen again, um, and I, I've got no fear in declaring that at all out loud because the story is just so ridiculous that it's barely believable if you didn't speak to so many people who are you know involved with it after (laughs) after actually you know after the fact but you know uh, uh, every single kind of aspect of this story is is interesting but you know is there any particular bit that kind of stands out to you that we've not discussed or you know any part that feels particularly kind of poignant to you 
I mean, as you point out, each element is sort of amazing in and of itself. Um, the the first glimpse that I had uh, of it was I, I went to work for Ilmore about 18 months after this all took place. So I was not there, but, uh, you know, after a long day at the track, we'd all go have dinner and a few people would have a, a sip or two and would start telling stories. And uh, Mark McArdle, who uh, Kevin mentioned, told me that on the dyno, they had a complete failure. The piston itself had spun to its side within the, within the engine, and yet it was still cranking along on the dyno. No, no <laughs> visible outward sign that there was an issue until they took it apart. And uh, it, it just had so much horsepower that it, it just sort of continued on despite a, a piston completely uh, uh, coming apart from its location. So that was like the initial gee whiz moment for me that somebody needed to tell this story. And uh, that's sort of what kicked it off uh, long ago. And, and Kevin, I know you, uh, you know, at the time it would have just been, you know, kind of move on to Phoenix, like nothing's happened, I guess, you know, you do your celebrating after the 500 and then, oh, wow, you know, we've got the rest of the season to finish here and we've got a championship to win. But, you know, what do you kind of remember from the feeling, you know, after the 500 and the, and the relief? Because I guess, you know, Paul's car falling out of the race and, and, and Emerson crashing and Al's radio not working, you know, these whole combination of factors, it must felt like you know, the indie gods were against you at this point. So, you know, what was that kind of feeling of relief like at the end and, and the celebration and, and the elation? Well, it it, it took uh, a bit of effort to get there, to be honest, because, uh, you know, during the race, we had a scare that, that really, the story goes all the way back to the Monday before carburation day, where we had shipped the race engines and they were being put in the cars. And in one of the spare engines, uh, during the typical post uh, dyno test inspection, we found some fragments in the uh, in the scavenge pump. Uh, you know, typically you're taking off the oil scavenge pumps and looking at the screens to see if there's any indication of anything gone wrong in the engine, wear bits or whatever. And so we found this these pieces that looked like an oil control ring. And so then quickly taking apart the spare engine, we saw that it did have a damaged oil control ring. And so that sends out alarm bells like you can't imagine because, you know, we spoke <laughs> earlier on the parts that are consumables and then the parts that you mileage life. So the, the oil control rings are consumables. You figure that, you know, if, they, if they've gone the distance and you have good oil control in previous builds, then new set of rings should be fine. But the other thing you do in the competitive engine building arena is you tend to batch things like that. So valve springs and piston rings and things like that. You try to work of a common manufacturing batch so that you're getting good history. You're building up history by association, right? And so you're not going to get into a situation where, oh, this is a new batch of rings and uh, just in time for the race builds and, oh, they missed the heat treatment on this ring. Guess what? You're done, right? So naturally, the race engines in the cars and the spare engines all had the same batch of rings. And we could not tell at the time when we were looking at that broken oil control ring if it was damaged on assembly or if it was an issue with the batch. And so we have this hanging over our heads as we're trying to get the spare engines together 
go out. The plan was to leave the engines in, you know, go, go through carburation day. If no problems, then no problems. But we literally made that decision uh, to, to stay with what we had on, uh, on carburation day. As I, I arrived at the racetrack, I had the broken oil control ring pieces in a plastic bag. Mario and Paul Morgan and Roger are all out on the pit wall. They're watching practice go on. I jump over. And so it's Mario and Paul and I crouch down inside of the inside wall on the front straightaway. And we're looking at these pieces of the broken piston ring. And Roger says, hey, guys, go back to the go back to the paddock. Go back to the shop. You know, get out of harm's way here. So we went back and, you know, everybody's touching the bits and all the rest of it. And then we decided, look, this this was inadvertently an assembly issue and we have confidence. Let's go through, you know, and, and if everything runs fine on Thursday, carburetion day, we're not touching those engines. OK, so now fast forward to race day and we're about half distance. And, uh, you know, things are going okay. The, the Al and the Emma were completely dominating the race. And uh, Paul is mired in traffic due to his low qualifying position. And during a yellow flag, all of a sudden, we see Paul Tracy coming down the front straight. And there's oil smoke coming out of the turbocharger. And this was like, oh, my God. Because now it, this immediately closes the loop on the earlier concern We've misread it, and guess what? These things are a ticking time bomb. So Paul retires from the race, and of course, everybody is still watching the race, and we get the car in the garage, get it up, the mechanics, Penske mechanics helped us get it up on stands, and then those guys were back out doing other support race functions. And so Paul Morgan and myself are taking the car apart. We start to take the car apart. We take off the bodywork. We're taking off, you know, all the side pods, all the rest of it, because we want to get the engine out. We want to see what's underneath those scavenge pumps. You know, is there more evidence of what we'd seen in that previous engine in the week before? And so at the moment, we remove the turbocharger from the car, then we could clearly see in the oil scavenge pump for the turbo, that the turbocharger roller bearing had failed and shoved a bunch of pieces into the pump, locked up the pump, and then that was all our oil control issue and why Paul was out of the race. But frankly, for probably 40 minutes, we were thrashing, Paul and myself, in that garage because it's not like you could change anything. It's not you not to change oil rings during the race, right? But if there was some bit of information to be gleaned from that failure, whether it was, you know, maybe we got to pull, tell them to pull back or whatever, there was always something else you could do to ensure this was going to make it. And, you know, we had three bullets in the gun. That was our first one gone, right, mid-race. Uh, and so, you know, I, I can tell you it was a, quite a relief on Paul Morgan's face when we determined that the engines were in fact okay, and then this was a this was a one-off bearing failure in the turbo. That's my boldest memory of race day. And after that, you know, because by that time we were maybe three quarters of the way through by the, of the race. By the time the you know we got that disassembly uh, completed, and um, and the rest was uh, pretty much just you know I'm I'm just uh, kind of a nervous type, uh, pacing the sidelines a little bit. 
because, you know, tested enough to know that anything can happen at any time, whether it's your fault or not. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it, everybody there is holding their breath because at the end of the day, it's a highly speculative engine. Everyone is essentially a prototype. There's no, you couldn't say it was mass produced to the point where any of the other four cam engines were, you know, there's just no history. And so everything you knew about it was all that was known about it. And you recognize that still you you didn't know everything you needed to know to have the confidence that you wanted on race day. I don't think un- unless you've been in that position, you can know what you were feeling like on that day. I, I really feel sorry for you, even though it's a fantastic <laughs> achievement and you had such a you know a phenomenal story to yeah. tell afterwards. I still feel sorry yeah. for you. <laughs> yeah, it's not over till it's over. <laughs> well, it's just incredible looking back at the whole story. And I think, you know, how this engine was up and running in kind of 35 weeks, kept secret worked and beat the opposition while being one of the most powerful engines produced in motorsport up until that point is, is just incredible. And to be honest, it's kind of sad to to not know what the engine could have been like after a year of development as well, you know, judging by, mm. you know, the performance that was extracted from the engine in such a, a short period of time. So that's kind of the story of, of Beast, or at least a, a snapshot, a, a shorter snapshot than what you'll find in, uh, in Beast. Um, perhaps the fact that Penske failed to qualify for the 95 race and then didn't do the Indy 500 again until 2001 because of the split between Cart and USAC adds even more intrigue to this story. But looking back now, has to be one of the best and undercovered stories in, in recent recent racing history. And perhaps Jade's book is too good that other people are just scared to talk about it, uh, you know, un- until now, <laughs> until now, anyway, until now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we hope... Um, yeah, thanks to to Jade and Kevin um, and the legend that is Alan Junior and his dog Lola, who also joined us briefly for the for the podcast earlier. Make sure you leave a comment on how you found this episode and let us know your favourite element of this fantastic story. Preferably, having returned to your now old and tatty, well-read version of Beast, or you can buy a new one from Octane Press. I think Jade is that right? Can can uh, that's correct? Uh, Amazon has it. Uh, new paperback edition is out. So. Uh, Feel free to grab all that you like. Awesome. And we very much look forward to your work with uh, Alan Jr. on the book that's coming out later this year, which is not quite finished, not quite ready to be discussed, but we'll look forward to having you back on when that is ready and uh, all polished up and ready to go. So please leave us a review and let us know what topic we should be covering next on this podcast. And we'll be back soon with more stories from the IndyCar archive. After recording this podcast, Motorsport lost a true great in Bobby Unser, Alan Jr.'s uncle. We'd like to dedicate this podcast to Bobby's memory. A gifted driver behind the wheel at many major events like the Indy 500 and the Pikes Peak Hill Climb, as well as on short oval dirt racing, Bobby and Al Senior are the only brothers to each win the Indianapolis 500, as mentioned earlier in this podcast with Al Jr. The outpouring of grief following Bobby's passing only goes to show the amount that he was revered, and we wish all the best to Bobby's friends and family in this most difficult of times. The race would like to thank the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and particularly the IMS Radio Network for the period radio clips used in this podcast. I want to thank this Marlboro Team Penske, I tell you. Roger, he, special thanks, I tell you, you know, he, he loves this place as much as I do and, uh, and it shows, you know, he brought us a, a special car and all that and, and I just want to thank all the people out there, you know, it... Uh, Without you, this place wouldn't be what it is, and so we love you very much.